But God is so gracious to us to give us a place where we can open and freely worship him. So we'll continue to do through reading the word and our time of preaching that we're about to move into. Um, but before we open the, the book, we are going to pray, and I'll invite you to uh, pray with me. Jesus, you're so beautiful in all of your slim, simplicity. Born in a barn, raised in the countryside, grew up to be a carpenter, yet Emmanuel, fully God, fully man. Lifted high in the cross to show your glory, wearing a crown of thorns. Yet now you are seated in heaven as the eternal king, where angels worship you and creation cries out. Thank you for how simple and beautiful the gospel is and how profound and awe-stricken it is too. So confound us, Lord. Strike our hearts this morning through the preaching of your word. And help us to marvel over your person and work. Work in us. Do a supernatural work. We know that without the Holy Spirit, nothing's done. And so we're leaning on you through the reading and preaching of your word to do heart surgery. So work on us, Father. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, some of you may or may not know this. Uh, but my father-in-law, his, uh, his name is Bob Smart. And uh, Bob is a, a pastor. Bob's actually been here a number of times now to our church to uh, do some teaching, to do some preaching. And uh, as a pastor, Bob has this really big heart for missions. He's been a pastor for about 30 years now. And so every year his church allows him the opportunity to fulfill the longings of his heart and sends him overseas. Bob usually goes overseas to train uh, pastors how to preach and teach in the Reformed faith, and he also gives counsel and deals with many other things. Not too long ago, Bob had a chance to travel to Africa, to Congo. He uh, visited this really word-based, Christ-centered church and was preaching. Bob told me the sermon went well, but after he got done with the sermon and left the pulpit, the church began to take a time for the final song like we have here and respond to the word by singing. And so all the people responded to the word with, with singing. And all of a sudden, as they were singing, the people in this joyous celebration not only started to sing, but also to dance and jump up and down. Uh, the people during the sermon were sitting in these little plastic picnic chairs. And during the last song, they literally took the chairs picked them up over their head, and began to do this while dancing around the pulpit. And you know, my father's this little uh, white boy Presbyterian from uh, Normal, Illinois, and so to put it lightly, Bob's not used to that. It's a really big deal, even on a Sunday morning, for um, his congregation to rhythmically clap their hands. But Bob told me while he was in that moment he was able to see the people's hearts for Jesus, how they could not help themselves in response to hearing the gospel proclaimed, but sing and dance. And so Bob, without hesitation, picked up a chair and began to go like this. You know, dancing before God, a scene in the Bible is actually a biblical thing. King David did that. Other things such as poetry are biblical things. King Solomon did that, wrote poetry too and about the Lord. 
And this morning, as we approach our text, we are going to see a woman who in the most countercultural way, almost in even a bizarre way, worshipped God. A woman who took everything that she had and laid it before Christ in the eyes of many people and how Jesus, in light of her heart, behind her actions, said that she nailed it. And so this morning, this is what I like to help us see and also think about. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. I've titled this sermon this morning, The Heart of Worship and the Grace of Christ. Three things I'd like to show you about Jesus in regard to this idea and topic are this. Number one, Jesus welcomes sincerity. Number two, Jesus is is patient with insincerity. And number three, Jesus defends the faithful. He welcomes the sincere. He is patient with the insincere and defends the faithful. We're going to begin our time by reading the story up front. Again, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread... And the chief priests and the scribes were asking or seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask. And poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you could do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she has could. What she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Issachrat, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you how Jesus welcomes the sincere Well, this morning we have um, before us quite a unique passage, and um, I say unique because this story here is one that is actually present in all all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can find this story in every one. And Luke is the only author who places this event in a way different location than the other three. He takes it and puts it way towards the beginning, and so some think he's telling a different story than this one. But uh, it is widely agreed upon, especially between this story here and the one that is in John, that this is the same event. And uh, so this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. I'm going to use both accounts, this one 
and the one found in John chapter 12 to bring color and clarity to this context. In the book of John, uh, this story occurs right after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, who, after their brother had died, went and found Jesus to tell him that Lazarus was dead and asked them to come to the funeral. And so Jesus came, attended the funeral, wept bitterly over his friend's passing, and then to display the power and authority that he had over life and death itself, raised his buddy Lazarus from the dead. So this story that we have before us this morning in John comes right after this. And so this scene that we are looking at here around this dinner table most likely includes these people. Mary, Martha, Jesus, the disciples, and the man who was once dead, but now has been raised back to life, Lazarus. And if that's not enough of a breathtaking scene or picture, if you look there in verse 3, you'll also see that Mark mentions that they were in Simon the leper's house. The man who was once ceremonially unclean, but now who had been healed by Christ. That's what made this group of people possible to go into the house. I mean, think about this setting here, right? This group of people. This picture really could not get any more beautiful. This was a celebratory meal for Christ. Christ here is the honored guest at the dinner table. And there were also other people most likely in attendance here as well. And so as they're all eating and reclining around the table, all of a sudden this unnamed woman here in our text, which I am suggesting to you that is Mary, in verse 3, interrupts the meal, takes this alabaster jar full of pure nard, breaks it open, and pours it out over Christ's head. In other words, Christ is now wet. The moment seemingly is interrupted, possibly ruined, the room is filled with the aroma of fresh-baked goods and food and also perfume. And so I'm asking, why would Mary do this, right? Well, think about what Mary has just been through. Think about what she has just seen and experienced. Her brother was just dead, and now he's alive, most likely sitting at the table or in the room, and the person who just brought him back to life is sitting in front of her. In other words, Christ or, or Mary here is blown away by Jesus. And through this one act here, she is revealing for us her faith. Her faith in the words that Christ spoke to her at the funeral before he raised Lazarus to life. This is what he said to her before he did it. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. I say these things on account of the people standing around me that they may believe. And then he called out to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And there, Mary's brother, Lazarus, came out walking. Mary here around this dinner table knows whose presence she is in. Her act is an expression of faith in the one who has power to raise the dead to life, who has taken this power and used it to serve her and her family. 
And so in this spontaneous act of worship around the dinner table, she opens up this jar of perfume as a representation of her heart overflowing with praise. You see, this jar of perfume, this pure, of pure nard, wasn't just any jar of perfume. It was actually uh, worth the equivalent to the average purse's, uh, person's yearly salary. 300 denarii is what Mark says in, in verse 5. Mary's heart is bursting over Jesus. And so she breaks this expensive jar full of pure nard and all in one moment, probably in a matter of minutes or seconds, pours it over Jesus' head and feet. And if this isn't enough of a picture, in John's account, John goes on to say that then after this, she unwound her hair, knelt down before Jesus and wept, and there with her hair, wiped her tears off of his feet. Which at first can seem bizarre, even to the people in the context of this time, because according to this context, the cultural norm was a woman had to keep her hair up. For a woman to let down her hair in public in the eyes of other men was considered to be taboo. In other words, Mary here, in light of her love for Christ, willingly broke cultural standards and norms in order to fulfill with a sincere heart worship. She put her name on the line in the eyes of others, spending everything that she had almost flippantly in order to exalt and adore Christ. And in this moment, all of us should be on the edge of our seats because what is Jesus going to do, right? It would have been appropriate for him as a rabbi of this custom and culture to uh, bend down to Mary, whisper in her ear and say, hey Mary, this is kind of over the top. Hey Mary, this is not the usual or accepted way people worship. Hey Mary, we're at a dinner celebration for me. Everyone's watching. You're putting my name on the line. Can we wait until another time in, in another more appropriate place? No, Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't say this or act this way at all, but rather through his actions, we see Christ welcoming Mary. Why? Because all that matters to Jesus in this moment is Mary's sincerity of heart. After beholding the person and power of Christ, Mary has this real and sincere desire to worship and honor Jesus as unnormal as it may be. And Jesus here is not worried about what everyone else would think or about what was customary or normal of the time. From this text, I'd like to point out to you two really big and important things. Number one, that this is true worship. Sincerity. And number two, that this is a woman. Two really important things that we must remember and know. What is true and authentic worship and how Jesus treats, recognizes, dignifies, and honors women in the front of men in the context of the church. One man from the Pillar New Testament commentary series, James Edwards, wrote beautifully on this. Listen to what he said. Women play especially important roles in the Gospel of Mark. Not only are they mentioned frequently, but the highest acclaim of Jesus in the book goes to women. Mark mentions 15 different women a total of 22 times in this Gospel, not counting the mention of Jesus' sisters in chapter 6, the many other women who followed Jesus in Galilee in chapter 15, and the mention of the right of women to divorce their husbands in chapter 10. Fifteen of the 22 mentions of women appear in unusually positive contexts. 
The value and dignity of women and of girls are signified by the fact that Jesus healed them. In their following and serving Jesus and in Christian fellowship, women are models of discipleship. In special instances, they play prominent roles, even preeminent roles, receiving the highest praise that Jesus gives in the gospel for ideal faith and devotion. In chapter 5, the woman with the hemorrhage was a model of faith for the man, Jairus, who was the synagogue president. And the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7 was a model of faith for all outsiders. In chapter 12, the widow in the temple was praised by Christ for giving more than everyone else. And above all, this anointing at Bethany is so exemplary that Jesus says the proclamation of the gospel in the world is a commemoration of her act. How is that for Jesus' view of women? Jesus takes a woman in the context of church and faith and places her up as an exemplary model and says, look, do you want to know what worship is? Look at her. Above and beyond all other topics in the context of Christianity, the most weighty is worship. Worship, glorifying God. And here we have Jesus pointing to Mary. You see, here at our church, we believe that women are just as valuable as, me as men to God. We are a conservative church, but we are also one that longs for, like Jesus, to recognize, value, dignify, and set forth women as exemplary models of faith to all. We believe here at this church that the church itself in general without women would be weak at best, barely able to survive. In fact, right now we're training a group of ladies, um, women, to serve alongside of the deacons. We're going to be calling a deaconess care team to attend the deacons meetings and help them lead the church in mercy and ministry. Wow, that's refreshing. Praise God for Christ. Look what he's doing as he dignifies genders. Wow. Men, how striking it is to see Jesus' honor of you and upbuilding of women in the church. Wow, it should break our hearts for those who've been too dogmatic on this issue. Wow, how beautiful it is to see Jesus' affirmation of creation in the garden to create equal value of Adam and Eve in their distinguished and different roles. Wow. But more important than this, what we th see through Mark's intention of writing and highlighting Mary is this view and beauty and importance of what is true and authentic, sincere worship. Mary is recognized here not because of her gender. Mary is recognized here because she loves, honors Christ, and adores God with a sincere heart. She is displaying for us what is radical self-forgetfulness in the context of church and worship. So to display fruit of that, she lays down everything she has, her body, her finances, her life itself in the eyes of all and says, Jesus, you can have all of me. And so I ask us in light of this, is this the way that we think about Jesus and ourselves in front of him? in the context of who he is and what he's done, in light of his death and resurrection and full atonement to make full, uh, full sacrifice for our sin, do you, do we, like Mary, get on our knees? Are we willing to get on our knees in front of the public, metaphorically and also physically speaking, and lay it all down before the one who has the power to save? 
Did you know that Jesus never rejects anyone who comes to him with a sincere heart of worship? Did you know that your track record, past, present, does not have to be perfect to come to Jesus? Mary here in John chapter 11 was the same person who was struggling with doubt at the funeral for Christ to raise her brother. And Jesus treats her with patience and brought her to this moment. And you might say, James, you don't know what I've done, man. I'm in sin. I've done wretched things. I've rejected God. My track record's crappy. My story's a mess. Right now, I'm not living like as if I could acknowledge God at all. And I'm saying to you that you are the perfect candidate for Jesus. Are you sincere? Do you really want to encounter the person work of Jesus? He says to you, I created you. You come to me. I will restore you, heal you, and make you whole. You come to me just as you are. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to get it straight. Your theological ducks don't have to be in order. You don't have to have anything in place. You come to me just as you are. I will embrace you, and I will push away everyone else who says you are not able to come. Forget about your life. Forget about your reputation. Forget about all those things that you are now seeking to pursue, which have been producing in your life vanity, unfulfillment, a heart that is aching for God alone, lay them all down and come to my feet and I will fill you and satisfy you with a type of love and affirmation that your soul was created for way back in the garden. My presence with you, not exterior, interior, inside your heart. Will you, will we, the church, think about Mary as a prime example of what is worship and how to appreciate the person, work, and power of Christ? If you do believe in Jesus, does this describe, maybe physically, but definitely metaphorically, the disposition of your heart? Are you bowing before the Savior? Amen? That was point number one. Jesus invites the sincere. I'd like to now move to point number two and show you how he's actually pa patient with the insincere. So uh, in verses one through three, we have this beautiful scene of worship between Mary and Christ. And then all of a sudden, in verse 4, Mark introduces us to this group of people who interrupt the moment. In John chapter 12, the person who interrupts this moment is, is Judas. If you look there at the end of our text, he's mentioned in verses 10 through 11. You'll see him. And in verse 4, it says this. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? In John chapter 12, it's Judas who said these, says these words. And so, in this moment, with a just, just a, shoe, a, a few short words, all this beauty comes to a halt, and the intention or attention of the text goes from Jesus and Mary to Jesus, this group, and Judas. Could you imagine for a second how much Judas's words and this, uh, uh, how much Judas's words would have hurt this woman? How much they would have stung? Not just Judas's words, but even this group's disposition towards Mary. How hurtful it would have been to her in this vulnerable moment of worshiping Christ. The phrase that Mark uses to describe them in verse 5 is, they scolded her. In Greek, it's actually one word, a verb, which means to snort their noses. In other words, this group of men were scowling Mary. They were giving her a death stare as she was worshiping Christ. This religious group of men. And I say 
religious because think about the response in the question. It is theologically precise, objectively right, good, and true. They say in, in light of this one seemingly flippant act, act, hey, couldn't we have used this money better? Couldn't we have been more wise in making decisions about money in ministry? Great question. So theologically precise. I'm using this sarcastically. Because really what I want us to recognize about this question here, especially as it comes to Judas, is that it was the epitome of insincerity. Meaning this question didn't come from a heart that really cared about the poor, but rather from theological dogmatism, which was void of love. This is an example of a group of heartless theological jerks who actually don't care about people encountering the gospel at all, but rather themselves, their religious customs, their norms, their own agendas, and here in this context, their money. This people, this group, were unmistakably lacking love, possessing intellectual knowledge of the scriptures and of God, but missing the very heart, missing the gospel and lording it over this poor woman who did not do things right in their eyes. And listen, Judas wasn't ignorant to what was happening here. Judas is a disciple. He's walked with Jesus for nearly three years here. He knows what Jesus' ministry is about and who it's aimed for and directed at, who is most successful with. And especially with this group of people around the table, he understood in full But here, he and this religious group, wherever they were in this text, were willing to use their theological prowlessness to serve their sin and pride. I would like to ask you a question just for a moment to stop the sermon. I want to ask you as a pastor if you ever have experienced a theological jerk. Um, a Christian who um, judged you for not doing it right. A person who assumed to know your heart by your actions, but missed it totally. A person who spoke up in the name of God, and after they corrected you, all you felt up, end up feeling was condemnation, guilt, or shame. Um, if you can uh, relate to this, I'd just like to say that I'm really sorry. I know what that feels like. Unfortunately, because of sin, Ignorance and insincerity is often covered in religious jargon. Unfortunately, because of sin, brokenness and lovelessness is often masked with religion. I just want to remind you again as your pastor that Jesus would never treat you this way if you have a sincere heart. And at best, even if it was a rebuke, he would do it with gentleness and encouragement to woo you to his affection and love. You know, this is actually why I'm so thankful that I'm not the Savior, because if I'm Jesus here, I'm calling these people out, every one of them, especially Judas here, right? Because Jesus knows Judas's heart. This was not the first time that Judas was using religion insincerely or lovelessly. John chapter 12, verse 6 says that he has been stealing from the ministry money bag all along. Could you imagine the audacity? Standing before Christ here is the very person who will go on in the next chapter to betray him. Sitting around the table here are the very people who will go on to abandon him and deliver him over to death to the Romans. But consider Jesus. How he deals with them and responds even in the midst of this. 
In verse 6, all he says are these words, leave her alone. And a few other words after that. But he doesn't expose Judas. He doesn't call these people out. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? You're a bunch of hypocrites. No, but rather with, with grace here, Jesus is patient even to bear with this. This is mind-blowing grace. Grace that no human being can show outside of the Spirit's empowerment living inside. And this is the type of grace that we all need because if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we haven't acted this way with theology or church, but because of our sin, we all have definitely lacked love for others and hindered them in one way or another from encountering the true Christ. Did you know that we are all always and in every and any way encounter pushing people towards or pulling people away from Christ? C.S. Lewis, in his book titled The Weight of Glory, said this. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these two destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Can you see how all the time you and I are tempted to forget this? Image bearers. How we at times, because of our sin and pride, our anger, our selfishness, our lack of patience, etc., have hindered others through our own lives of encountering the true Christ, the Christ that is here in this text. Have you ever been a theological jerk and in pride dogmatic? I know it's really tempting once you begin to begin to learn about the Bible or theology to think that you have had it all figured out, but I just say beware. We're talking about the all-knowing, everlasting, infinite God who here in this text loves this woman and accepts this worship. It's so easy as Christians to say that we love God, to talk about things that are right and good and even affirm them, but in the next moment when we get home from work, see our neighbor looking at us and quick turn our hands and pretend we never saw them. And make our way into our house, lacking neighbor love, and a missional heart for outreach and evangelism, for God's redemptive historical mission through the church, for the church and the elect to reach the lost. It's just one example. You see, God has been unfathomably gracious and patient with us and given to us Christ, eternal mercy in Christ, so we can be unfathomably gracious eternally and give people mercy, the same mercy that we have received from the cross, to those who do things differently than us, to those who are often outsiders, to those whose worships are unaccepted, to those whose life would not be orthodox or fit exactly into the way that we want to create our theological box. 
What if we took the grace and mercy of Christ that God himself has given to us and extended to this church and our neighbors and the places where we work, live and play? I'll tell you what happened. The kingdom would be built to the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. This is why Christ died. For our sin, our ignorant presumption, and our lack of missional love, done in the name of religion. So we could be redeemed and take this redemption and in love, live it out in missional ways. Amen? That was point number two. I'd like to finish now on point number three and show you which is actually the best news of this whole entire text, that Jesus defends the faithful. As we conclude here, I'd like to reconsider Jesus' words in verse six for a moment. Mary, as you have seen, is in this vulnerable spot. She's a new believer, a baby Christian, she doesn't know much compared to these trained theological men who've been through rabbinic school. And here she's being scolded. And so weeping, wounded, and saying nothing, Jesus in verse 6 steps in and speaks up on her behalf and says three words, leave her alone. Could you imagine how amazing it would have felt for Mary, for Jesus to stand up and speak on her behalf? Jesus is confronting Mary's accusers. She, he is uh, shielding her from further attack. And in this verse, we're reminded of here is the hardened character of God. The hardened character of God, which is the same hardened character of God, which has been displayed ever since the first book of the book, of the, of the great book, Genesis, all the way to Revelation. The hardened character of God, which is steadfast, unchanging, and true. What is it? That God himself, through Christ here, has a heart for the weak, the vulnerable, the lowly, and the broken. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. God says this, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plea the widow's cause. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood. This passage here is giving us yet another picture of our God, a.k.a. Christ. Who is Jesus here for the sincere worshiper in heart? He is their rock, their redeemer, their safe place, their refuge, their strong tower, and mighty fortress. Jesus here in this text is helping us see that he is a defender of the weak. For those who believe in Christ, the good news is that Jesus speaks up for and defends. And even more than this, what we see as this gospel of Mark unravels is that he not only speaks up, but he also stands up and acts on their behalf. This chapter here marks the beginning of the passion narrative, which is Jesus' pathway and pursuit to death. In other words... The cross is the place where Christ once and for all defended us. On the cross, Christ himself became our sin's substitute and made full and complete payment on our behalf. And there as he hung on the tree, do you remember the three last most completely beautiful and powerful words that he's ever spoke? What did he say? He said, it is finished. See, just like Mary here, we all have an accuser, Satan himself, who longs to make us guilty and unclean. As we seek to follow Jesus and 
and, and, and wander and stray and unfaithfulness. Satan, since he lacks the power to kill us, his strategy is to do everything else that he can do to destroy our person. And he destroys our person by helping us believe and fall, uh, succumb to um, uh, lies about our identity, lies about our standing before God, about our past, that our future is grim. And this, in this moment right now that we're living in, that we're weak and helpless. And as fallen creatures, his lives are seductive, and we begin to believe them. And you can sense this, put out your gospel radar, and know when you're believing this, when you begin to walk around in guilt or condemnation, or fear, or doubt, or shame. Strategies of the evil one to make you disbelieve or unembrace the truth and power of being united to Christ by faith alone. And so I say to you in light of this, this fallen condition factor, in Christ you have a perfect and strong advocate who is indeed himself the Son of God. Jesus Christ, as you stand before God the Father, stands before you and covers you in his perfect and complete righteousness. You do not stand before God the Father without an advocate. You stand before God the Father with Christ the Son standing in front of you, covering you in full. Therefore, you are completely perfect and justified, adopted, glorified, sanctified, called beloved. The words of the famous song, Fit Appropriate Hero, I'll finish by reading this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who's made an end to all of my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with him I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and at his resurrection offered us the power of the spirit, Satan's guilty accusations and charges are thus now made powerless through Jesus alone. You're clean, you're forgiven, you're free. I pray that through this, you would lay down, dear Christian, and rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Father, thank you that you have made, made Satan's accusations powerless. Help us to boast in the gospel and renounce the lies that we're so quickly to believe about ourselves and about our lives. And boast in you and you alone. You are indeed the great and powerful Savior who gives grace even when we lack obedience. Bless us now as we move to the table. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.